from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Welcome to this podcast edition. My name is Christina Parandi. I'm a former CR Clara O'Donnell Fellow. And this week, we are discussing the situation in Belarus with Charles Grant, director of the CR. Hi, Charles. Hi, Christina. Nice to be with you again. Nice to be with you. Charles, your recent insight is about the developments in Belarus ahead of the presidential elections in the country, which are planned for the 9th of August. Basically, this is less than a month from now. Perhaps we could start our discussion if you could provide the outline to our listeners on what has been happening in Belarus over the past month and why is this the country to watch this summer? Very nice to be with you again, uh, Christina. Well, I should say that although um, neither you nor I is Belarusian, we both have connections to Belarus through family and close friends. We both have a strong interest in the country and we've both written CR insights on the country in this year, you in, in February and myself uh, in June. I think um, Belarus is a country I've known for a while and it always seemed to be stuck in a rut. The same man has been president since 1994. Every five years there'd be an election, every five years he'd win the election and usually lock up some of his opponents in the process. But I have a feeling, as I wrote in my recent CR Insight, that the country's beginning to change and in some ways at least. Uh, there's a feeling that underneath the surface uh, there's less stability than there appears to be. Why do I say that? Um, well, firstly, I think, I think as far as one can tell from the outside, support for the president is quite a lot less than it used to be. It's some informal opinion polls put it at less than 10%. While there's been a big growth in, in civil society activity, initially during the COVID-19 pandemic, when groups got together in civil society to support those who needed help because the government didn't do very much to help those badly affected by the COVID crisis. More recently, politically, there have been queues of kilometres long of citizens queuing up to sign the nomination papers for the opposition candidates for the presidential elections. Babaraka, the Victor Babaraka, the most prominent opposition candidate, had 450,000 signatures for his nomination papers with huge queues of people trying to support him. And when um, there has been repression, which we've seen, Babaraka has been put in jail and other opposition candidates have been put in jail. There's been a lot of popular protests about this, peaceful protests, uh, but certainly something seems to be stirring and the degree of hostility to the regime, I think is rather greater than it has been in recent years. Therefore, if those of us who wish for a peaceful evolution in Belarus are cautiously optimistic, I feel. Right, but probably this is a good time to ask you about what is your take about the feasibility of such a peaceful revolution? Because uh, this week on 13th of July, there was the, uh, uh, an important meeting by the Central Electoral Commission which banned this key candidate's competitors to Lukashenko for the presidential elections, namely Viktor Babarika, whom we already mentioned, and Valery Tsipkalo. And obviously many people were taken to the street, protesting against this decision. But how do you see it evolving? What could happen next, in your opinion? Well, I, I don't know. Nobody knows. But it seems that the man who controls the security services and the army and the police is obviously likely to stay in power if he wishes to stay in power in the short and medium term. I think there's no doubt that the winner of the presidential election will be 
Alexander Lukashenko. Um, he, the opposition candidates who matter are in prison. Um, nevertheless, from in the long run, uh, you know, for those of us who hope for peaceful evolution, will note that civil society is, as I said, stirring. You have to look at the reasons why it's stirring, to, and then we may be able to extrapolate for the future and say it'll stir a bit more in the future. And the reason why it's stirring, one of the reasons is the economy's been doing rather badly. People are, people's standard of living has certainly gone down on average in the last five years. The Russians are reducing the subsidies that have propped up the Belarusian economy through cheap oil coming into Belarus that was refined in the country and then uh, turned into oil products which re-exported to the West. There's been little modernization of the economy, which apart from a fairly successful IT sector, remains a Soviet-style economy with top-down management, a lot of heavy industry, tractor production, and so on. Uh, and the economy doesn't seem to be able to modernize itself. So there's not much hope for the economy itself picking up and providing jobs and interesting opportunities for young, bright young people in the country. A lot of them are actually leaving the country. And I think that, that was the background. And then the government's inept response to COVID-19 made things worse. This is why there's been this sort of dissatisfaction with the regime. There was no lockdown in Belarus, just almost the only country in Europe, apart from Sweden, that had no lockdown. Uh, the president said, if you drink vodka and drive a tractor, you're unlikely to get ill, which didn't impress some people. Um, and then we have had also, uh, for the facts, you know, compared to previous elections, really strong opposition characters. Victor Babaraka, we, we mentioned, a former banker, is an impressive guy with a lot of, a lot of popular appeal uh, down to a common sense has a track record as a manager. There's, there was uh, Sepkala, uh, the um, former diplomat who's run the IT businesses uh, that run very well. There's Tikhanovsky, a kind of anti-corruption campaigner, a little bit like um, Alexei Navalny in Russia. There have been some serious candidates, all of which have put the regime under pressure. And I think whatever happens in the election uh, later, later in August, um, I do think that uh, Civil society is evolving, popular hostility to the regime is growing, and uh, it can't be quite, in the long, the long run, who knows what will happen. But what, 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 you're also an observer of Belarus, Christina. What do you think may happen? Well, that's a really interesting question, and of course we will see on the 9th of August. But to be honest, my uh, predictions that uh, Lukashenko would retain the power are quite um, based on the fact that the opposition now is almost eliminated. So out of five candidates who were registered by the Central Electoral Commission, only one is the real opposition candidate. And this is Svetlana uh, Tikhanovska. She's a wife of the blogger uh, Tikhanovsky, who is currently detained. And three other candidates are basically generally perceived as spoiler candidates. So the question is whether the electorate of Tsepkalo and Babarika, who could not support their candidates anymore, whether they would support Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, or whether this public mood would simply disappear, um, sorry, the, the public protest would simply dissolve by the time the election takes place. So I couldn't say I'm very positive about what may happen next in terms of the change, but I'm even more worried about what could happen in terms of the government's repression of um, of the protests if they if they happen. As you said, Christina, the, pro the repression has become worse. This does actually matter for how outside uh, entities such as the EU view Belarus. There are now been more than 700 people have been arrested in the last couple of months, two and a half months. Most of them have been re released, but not all of them. And there are at least, depending on how you count, 
20 or 25 political prisoners in the country. And that really matters for how outside entities such as the European Union view Belarus. Yes, so based on this, what do you think that the EU and the US can actually do about the danger of the crackdown on the protests? Well, it's, it's, the EU faces a rather difficult dilemma. I mean, there has been a kind of um, repetitive cycle in its relations with the country in recent decades. They've become a bit closer to the country for strategic reasons. They've tried to draw it away from Russia and they've developed a bit of a rapprochement. And then uh, the abuse of human rights has forced them to give the country a cold shoulder and push it back towards Russia. That's happened several times. Most recently, we saw uh, in 2016 a kind of deal between EU and Belarus, whereby Lukashenko did then release the political prisoners at that time. In return, the EU got closer to the country. The country joined the EU's Eastern Partnership, um, got some money from the, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the European Investment Bank, and was negotiating a deal called Partnership Priorities with the EU that would have allowed a close relationship in a number of spheres, including economic spheres. But now I fear that uh, rapprochement is, is, is past history because the, the detention of, new, of, of opposition leaders recently means the EU will not be able to push ahead with this rapprochement. The EU will now be contemplating what sanctions it applies and when does it apply them. It has to find ways of showing disapproval. But the EU has a dilemma, I said. The dilemma is very simple. If the EU uh, stands up for its principles and values, it has to apply some sanction or some punishment to the country for its abuse of human rights. But if it goes too far in punishing the country in a stringent way, breaks off contact with the regime itself, then it leaves no way out for the regime other than to go back to Russia and enter the Russian sphere of it, re-enter completely the Russian sphere of influence. And if, particularly if there's a if there's an economic crisis, which Belarus, I do believe, faces imminently in the next year or two, and the EU isn't able to give it any help because of the poor relationship, then Lukashenko will have to turn to Putin. And we know what Putin wants. Putin wants a much closer relationship with Belarus. He wants um, uh, a full implementation of what they have in the past called a union state. He wants Belarus to join uh, not just the customs union in the European economic, uh, sort of the, the, the Eurasian economic union that Belarus already has with Russia and a few other countries, but also a, a currency union and a much, much closer economic and political integration. So there's a danger for the EU that if it gets too tough with Belarus, it just effectively pushes it back completely into Russia's sphere of influence and allows Putin to aggrandize his, his territorial control of Eastern Europe. That is the dilemma the EU faces. Yes, but... As you, since you have mentioned Russia, do you think that the best outcome for Russia, given the objectives that uh, you have just listed, would be the re-election of Lukashenko or probably some other outcome? It's very hard to tell what Russia really wants in Belarus. Uh, they don't have their own candidate in, in these elections, although, of course, Babarika was portrayed as the Russian candidate because he used to work for a, a bank partly owned by Russia, Belgazprom Bank. Um, I think it suits... My own view is it probably suits Russia to keep Lukashenko where he is. Putin's relationship with Lukashenko is, is, is notoriously spiky. They don't get on very well. And Russia's kept on putting pressure on Lukashenko to, um, to, get, to accept a much closer integration than, than most Belarusians want. And, Belarus, and Lukashenko has wriggled and squirmed to avoid Russia's embrace in quite a clever and, and effective way. Um, but I think it suits Russia to keep Lukashenko there, but very, in, a weak, in a weak position, running an economy that's, that's failing, therefore needing Russian bailouts and Russian help and Russian support. 
in, in, and Russia, of course, can then extract its price of a much closer relationship. Already, Belarus, as I said, it's in the Eurasian Economic Union and it's in the CSTO Security Organization. But um, Russia would, would like a rather closer relationship. I don't, I don't really think Russia necessarily wants to gobble up the country whole and it's just integrated into Russia. That would not be cost free, as, as Putin has discovered in your own country, Ukraine, if you, if you, if you grab bits of territory that belong, in international law belong to other countries, there are consequences and downsides. I think if he was to grab Belarus, he'd find that a lot of Belarusians wouldn't be very happy, and some of them at least would resist. Most Belarusians, as far as I'm aware, do not want to be part of Russia. They like to be part of Belarus. So I think um, we can't be sure what Putin wants, but it suits Putin for Lukashenko to be weak and to need his support. I very much agree with your assessment on this. Perhaps we should touch briefly on the American dimension as well, Christina, because uh, Lukashenko is, uh, by some reports, said to be more worried about the Americans than the Europeans. Though they're further away, they can be tougher and rougher, and they, the more decisive in the way they act than the European Union can be. And um, certainly, uh, America has been having something of a Belarus too in recent years. Um, the, the, the America is upgrading its embassy in Minsk to ambassador level, from a much lower level. And they even supplied oil to Belarus earlier this year when Putin cut off oil supplies. And I think that um, the Americans perhaps take a more strategic view than, than the Europeans relative to the human rights side of the equation. The Americans seem to be not so concerned about human rights, but do see the opportunities of pulling Belarus away from Russia's sphere of influence to some degree. But I do think if the Europeans do try and influence what's happening in the country, and it's difficult for them to do so, they need to work very closely with the Americans. They'll have more clout if they work with the Americans. The basic trouble for all the, those outside the wish of the country in the West is we don't have very much leverage because the EU, in fact, supplies very little aid to Belarus, only about 30 million pounds, 30 million euros a year of direct aid. Uh, Belarus wanted much more money in terms of balance of payment support recently, but the EU said no to that. I don't think the Americans supply huge amounts of aid either. So the leverage that you have is limited, but what it can and has done in the past and will do again, I think, is probably apply sanctions on individuals linked to the repression, blocking their bank accounts, blocking their visas and so on. But I'm not quite sure what else they can do to, to influence the country. Yes, but I also think that, uh, of course, uh, the interests of the EU and the US uh, towards Belarus are quite different, as you mentioned, because of the strategic calculations. But earlier this summer, the US and the EU and also the UK have issued a statement together, which was quite a good beginning of their cooperation on this very uh, hard issue. And do you think that the UK would also, you know, stick to what the EU is saying on Belarus? Do you think that the Western unity can be preserved? I, I think so. Um, I, although the EU has its problems with the, the, sorry, the UK has its problems with the EU, of course, and the EU, the UK officially doesn't want any structure for facilitating foreign policy cooperation with the EU once it leaves completely the EU at the end of this year's transition period. Nevertheless, interests matter and values matter. And when it comes to dealing with Belarus, Britain and the main European countries that are interested in Belarus have very similar views. Uh, we care a little bit about human rights. We also care about uh, the strate strategic picture of, of not allowing Russia to extend its empire into other parts of Eastern Europe. So I don't see why they wouldn't work together. It was, it was very encouraging to see the British ambassador signing the same statement as the European ambassadors. 
European ambassador and the US ambassador earlier this year. And so I think Britain will work, which does have quite a good relationship with Belarus and quite a, quite a, quite a strong trading relationship with the country, will we'll join with the Europeans, who of course are not entirely united when it comes to the Belarus, let's be frank. I mean, uh, Hungary is rather a, a friend of, of Belarus, is a friend of many dictatorial regimes. Hungary, Hungary's leader, uh, Viktor Orban, went to Minsk uh, not long ago and said to uh, Mr. Lukashenko, the EU should have no sanctions at all on your country and it should give you lots of aid. Um, Austria is also a great investor in Belarus and other countries like Sweden care more about the human rights. So the EU is not entirely united, but it does more or less have a common line which it's holding at the moment. I think everybody in the EU is prepared to sign up a statement saying Belarus needs to release opposition leaders and behave better and run a fairer election than looks likely to happen. But the trouble is, as I said before, the EU doesn't have a lot of, a lot of means for enforcing its wishes on the country. Sure. If I may just add up on to that, I think it's really important uh, that the timing is, is selected correctly by the EU's and other Western countries' reaction, because it may be also too late if they start the quite pressing after the elections take place, given that the protest may be uh, dismissed. So I think it's really important to send these warning signals altogether before the elections and before the repressions can become even more severe. That's a very good point. Perhaps, perhaps um, finally, Christina, I could ask you a little bit about how you, the comparison between the country in which you're sitting, Ukraine and Belarus, they obviously have some things in common, but Ukraine underwent a kind of kind of democratic revolution a few, a few or twice a few years ago, first in 2004 and then again 10 years later. Um, and uh, didn't end entirely happily because Russia took over part of southeast Ukraine and also the Crimea. Um, but there was a sort of people's revolution in Ukraine. There have been two people's revolutions of different sorts. But do you, do you see there are comparisons with, Belarus, with, with Minsk, with, with Belarus? Is, is Belarus a country that could undergo the kind of change that, that Ukraine underwent? Or is it just too different? Is, this, is, the, is the nature of its society and the nature of its political system too different for that to happen? the way it happened in Ukraine? Well, frankly, I see more differences than similarities between the two countries when it comes to public protest. And I think that there are three key reasons for that. Uh, first and foremost, it's all about the role of the European Union. Because for Ukraine, the EU was always a partner and basically a destination, if I may say so. So those European aspirations were strong, although not in all the regions of, of Ukraine, but still on the governmental level, that was an official policy line that we very much depend on the EU and this is where we would like to move forward. And this is obviously not the case in Belarus. So in Ukraine, even when the protests in 2014, they turned to a more anti-government protest than geopolitical than they were at the beginning, still the EU was seen as a way out of all the problems that Ukraine had. So the EU meant better governance, better regime, uh, better state of liberties in the country. And basically, we really relied on our restoration as the country when Russia attacked Ukraine on the Western partners. Now, when it comes to Belarus, obviously, Belarus, Belarusian people realize that this is the change of the regime and they would be the ones responsible for the new one and that the EU would not be able to help as much as it did to Ukraine. So I think this is a very important distinction. Secondly, I think it's also about the protest potential in two countries. 
and of course it has many reasons historical ideological even in terms of mentality ukrainians are more critical of the government uh, they do not have such a social contract that you mentioned in your insight so basically ukrainians are really very impatient when it comes to the regime's overstepping of its um of its um governance and um the protests in ukraine itself are more radical it's not only about gathering and you know gathering signatures and gathering together but it's also about people being able to set up their tents and build up barricades in the city so i do think that the history of previous ukrainian protests add up to that which makes the mobilization efforts in ukraine easier than in belarus of course it is still too early to judge uh, how the protests in belarus can now open out how far they can go how many people can amass uh, during the presidential elections but i do think that they cannot reach the same level as ukraine had in 2013 and 2014. and finally and very much related to my previous point is about the consolidation of of the regime itself with lukashenko in power for over 26 years controlling all the bureaucracy the law enforcement bodies it's really hard to break through that system and it's really hard to change it so i'm a bit less optimistic when it comes to today's situation in belarus than what we had in ukraine a couple of years ago just because of these reasons i'm sure you're right about that um, it's, it's hard to be uh, very optimistic about an immediate change in belarus but i think perhaps what we have agreed on is that things are changing somewhat and although we know who's going to win the presidential election it's also uh, not clear what will happen in the longer run because Although it's harder and harder for an autocratic regime to maintain its, its rule over a country if, if the great majority of the population do not support it. And for much of Lukashenko's reign, the great majority of Belarusians have been more or less supportive. As we said, there's been a kind of social contract whereby he provided rising living standards and security and they accepted the different side of an authoritarian regime. But if, the, if he can't maintain the living standards rising, even if they're falling, and if the behavior of the regime is becomes increasingly unacceptable to many parts of Belarusian society, then I think in the long run, change becomes a prospect. Now, how that happens, obviously, one can't be sure at all. And what I can say is that let's hope it happens in a peaceful world rather than a bloody revolution. But let's, let's perhaps hope, let's hope there's a peaceful change coming in Belarus. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Charles, for this discussion. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much, Christina, and I uh, hope all goes well in, in, in Ukraine. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.